Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41, with Pastor John King. Mark chapter 15, 33 through 41. As you're turning there, what we recall from last week, we witnessed the wickedness and cruelty that was placed upon Jesus by the Jewish leaders and the Roman oppressors. The torturous scourging, the cruel mocking abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers, and finally the painful humiliation of being publicly led to his execution at Golgotha. To be literally nailed on a cross. Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18, covers a portion of what was taking place The writer says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was on the cross for approximately six hours on that day, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So today we will follow the gospel accounts to the end of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Through a three-hour period of divine darkness, during which time our Lord will experience the agony of separation from God the Father. Greater than any physical pain to the point where he will cry out with a loud voice, but it's a victory shout. He will be faithful to the end, and when he has secured our salvation, he will breathe his last. Let's look at our passage for today as I read Mark 15, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to him and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Heavenly Father, thank you once again that we have been set aside for this time right now. We've, we've, uh, Lord... Uh, By your leading and by your prompting, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've come here today to hear your word preached. 
And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that our hearts desire to grow closer to you, our hearts desire to learn more of you, our hearts uh, desire are to come and to encourage those that are here today, to encourage one another in the faith that we share in Jesus Christ. And Lord, had you not secured that salvation for us, we, we wouldn't even need to be here, would we? But Lord, you have given us eternal life, those of us who know you and have received you as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, we read of this account once again, very familiar to many of us. We read of it once again, and we pray that it would indeed pierce our heart, that it would bring to mind the great sacrifice and the great work that you have done on our behalf, that we deserved, but you stood in our place, Lord. And we thank you for that. So go before us as we read of this account once again. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When we start out, we see uh, from our reading that there was darkness, there was separation, and then there was confusion. There was darkness, there was separation, and there was confusion. In verse 33, we saw that now when the sixth hour had come, now we recall from last week that Jesus was placed on the cross at the third hour at 9 a.m. And now Mark takes us to the sixth hour, which is 12 noon. Over the past three hours, Jesus had suffered ridicule and scorn from all directions. The men who hung beside him, the soldiers who crucified him, and rolled dice for his clothing, and the Jewish leaders who brought him to trial and leveled their false accusations. The travelers even along the roadway. He was placed outside of the city where the people would come and go into the city of Jerusalem. All the while, his body was racked with intense pain and in gradual breakdown of his internal organs. As he would labor to push himself up in order to simply breathe. One writer put it this way. Jesus, he is now bearing the sins of all mankind. He is bearing the judgment and wrath of God the Father against sin. He is dying the death that we all deserve to die. He is doing all that is necessary to free mankind from sin, death, and judgment. And it says in the passage that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness in the middle of the day. Supernatural, physical darkness. Matthew 27, 45 says, over all of the land. This type of darkness symbolizes separation and loneliness. We don't, we don't like the darkness. We don't like it you know, out there, dark and dreary. Is it any wonder that all things, including nature itself, would be drastically affected by the death of God's Son. But what does this darkness sort of demonstrate? What does it symbolize to you and I? Let's go a little further with that. I propose that it symbolizes three things. One, it symbolizes God's presence. We'll explain that. It symbolizes God's judgment. And it symbolizes God's separation. 
All through the Bible, we see God's presence manifested either by light or darkness. Oftentimes, it's by intense light, a blazing fire, clothing as white as snow, and they're bright glowing in glory. Um, we see the word, the, the Bible says that He, God, is the lamp of light, that He is dressed in a robe of light. Psalm 18, 12, from the brightness before Him, His thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. So here we see the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, referring to God's presence as one of intense bright light. But we also see the darkness of God's presence. The Bible also reveals God's presence through darkness many times. A terrifying darkness. The dark, thick smoke of Mount Sinai. A darkness so thick that it can actually be felt. Exodus 10, 21 and 22. The plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land, Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. The darkness demonstrated that Christ was definitely God's only begotten Son. Before him, all mouths would be stopped with fear and reverence. There is no doubt that fear and wonder stopped the mocking mouths of the crowd standing around the cross. The darkness of God's judgment. Now we had the darkness of God's presence. But now we talk about the darkness of God's judgment, which was prophesied in Scripture. Amos 5.20 is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? The darkness symbolized the anger of God at sin. Sin and the sinner deserve nothing but the judgment of darkness. Sin deserves no light from God's presence, none whatsoever. The darkness symbolized the darkest day of human history. This was the day when the Son of God himself was being put to death for the sins of man. When you relate this true historical fact from the Bible, you may run into skeptics who try to claim that this was not supernatural. They would say, well, you know, that was a solar eclipse. But that's scientifically impossible because this was the annual Passover and the annual Passover takes place on the full moon solar eclipses only occur during a new moon and the average solar eclipse lasts approximately seven and a half minutes so it wasn't a solar eclipse this was a supernatural and some would argue that oh it couldn't have been over the entire earth when he says the whole land, this would, this would kind of be a weak argument. The way Mark and Matthew describe, use this phrase, it would be like saying for us in modern times, the devastation of the recent hurricane was everywhere. Okay, it, in all of what we saw. 
But there are historical accounts. Some of your early church fathers reported that the darkness of this event extended beyond Israel and was felt throughout the entire Roman Empire. And these were writers who would have known the people who were alive during that day because they wrote it, you know, in the first and second century. But when you add up the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you know, that, that's, that should answer the skeptics or at least help in that. But when you add up the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, turning our attention to something else, and that is what Jesus spoke from the cross. We see that he spoke seven times. During the first three hours that we covered last week, we know that Jesus, for one, he prayed for his accusers. Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. We saw, secondly, that he pardoned one of the thieves who hung beside him. Luke 23, 43. Jesus said to one of the thieves who had previously been mocking him and then repented of his sin and asked the Lord if he could take him. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we also see in those first three hours that Jesus instructed the Apostle John to carry, care for Mary, his widowed mother. John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he had loved standing by, who was John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own, to his home. And he took care of her for the rest of her days. So during the first three hours, Jesus was focused on others, his accusers, the thief beside him, his own mother. Now here in the ninth hour, Jesus responds and speaks to something else altogether and different, entirely different. He responds to the separation, the darkness of God's separation that we talked about. The withdrawal of the light of God's presence from the sinner. Again, what we were saying. Christ hung upon the cross as the sinner. All for us, the sinner, he was becoming sin for us. We know from the scriptures that eternal darkness and separation from God and everlasting punishment for sin is the description of hell. Matthew 8.12 But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus in verse 34 responds to the darkness that had come upon him. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Six hours on the cross and Jesus speaks now for the fourth time from the cross. And notice he cried out with a loud voice. That word, that phrase, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, is Aramaic. In Matthew's account, he says basically the same thing, but he uses the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And those were in Hebrew. The writers of these Gospels who were prompted by the Holy Spirit to give us these words 
retain the ancient language. One, one uh, pastor said it's as though they didn't want to touch that. They didn't want to go, even though they translated it, they retained it in our scriptures for us today. We know from scripture that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me are the same words used by the psalmist in Psalm 22, 1. In all other places in the scriptures, Jesus used the title of either Father or Abba when he spoke. And here we see the language is different. He says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means to abandon, to, to leave in straits, or to be felt as though he was helpless. For the first and the only time in all of eternity, Jesus now sensed that God the Father had indeed turned his back on him. He was separated and abandoned. Something he had never known. Not only was Jesus dying physically, but in a spiritual sense. He became sin and would experience death. The enemies of God, these two things, sin and death. And since God is holy, God the Father is holy, He cannot have fellowship with sin. Now for those theologians that are hearing me speak... Um, just know that it did not change the fact that Jesus was God. It didn't, it never, his divinity never left him. And we'll see a little bit why here shortly. John MacArthur writes this. He says, The repeated name, my God, my God, expressed the Son's profound affection and longing for the Father, mingled with the agony and pain of his separation from him. Unmistakably, the Father visited Calvary in massive judgment. But he was absent in comfort. Unlike the temptations Jesus endured in the wilderness and the Garden of Gethsemane, after which the Father sent angels to minister to his Son, as you recall, no relief was given to Jesus on the cross. Such is a picture of hell in which the full fury of God's wrath is ever present, but the comfort of his love and compassion is utterly absent. On the cross, the Lord Jesus endured the full reality of hell's torments, including being forsaken by his Father. Another writer would say it this way when you talk about forsaken. This happened in the sense that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that he might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. Horrible as it was, it fulfilled God's good and loving plan of redemption. And therefore, Isaiah could say, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And at the same time, 
We cannot say that the separation between the Father and the Son at the cross was complete because 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. Chuck Swindoll boils it down. He says, this was the most epochal moment in the history of time. At this time, your sins and my sins and those sins of our forefathers and those sins of our progeny and those who will live in the future were all laid on Jesus in one awful moment. So overwhelming was this experience. He literally screamed. He cried out with a loud voice. So first we had separation, excuse me, darkness. Then we had separation. Now we see confusion in verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now this is either a total misunderstanding or a willful disregard for Jesus' words. Some would say that the ones who said that were the Gentiles that were present because they didn't understand, because the Jews would know that he clearly did not say Elijah. Now think about, just think about how some people disregard Jesus' words today. And they twist the meaning of the scriptures and what Jesus said. You know, uh, money is the root of all evil. You know, a simple one, right? Well, no, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Those kind of things. People still react to the words of Jesus, the words of truth, and they willfully twist them. And then in this confusion in verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and they put it on a reed and they offered it to him to, him to drink. Now we know from John's account that they were responding to Jesus as he spoke for the fifth time on the cross. In John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said the words, two words, excuse me, I thirst. I thirst. And then they said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down and take him. The scornful mocking of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would continue right to the bitter end. So we had darkness, we had terrible separation, we had confusion, and now we start to see in verse 37, conclusion. The conclusion, the confirmation of who that Jesus is God, truly this is the Son of God, and along with the confession of that. Confirmation through the supernatural things that would take place at his death. Verse 37, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. He breathed his last. John and Luke, require, or excuse me, John and Luke record that before he breathed his last, putting all the gospel accounts together, is that our Lord Jesus spoke two more times from the cross. His sixth words from the cross are found in John 19.30. It said, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. That's teleo or tele uh, elestai. In other words, 
It's, it's a word that says, now paid in full. A shout, not of defeat, but a shout of victory. In Luke 23, 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Many martyrs in the history of the church spoke very close to the same thing as they were being executed or led to their execution or burned at the stake. Even after enduring the physical torture of the cross and the infinite torments of divine judgment, says one writer, Jesus demonstrated that he was still mentally alert and physically strong when he uttered a loud cry. His life did not gradually slip away due to exhaustion. Rather, he willingly laid it down. This is God's divinity. He never lost his divinity. John 10, 17. Jesus said these words. He said, we don't have a, a slide for that. John 10, 17, you may want to write this down. Jesus declared, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. But we read in our text that he breathed his last. The death of Jesus on the cross was and is the ultimate demonstration of God's love towards mankind, writes David Guzik. It is the power of God unto salvation, though it seems foolish to those who reject it. At the cross, Jesus wiped out our record of sin and rebellion against God, nailing it to the cross. If Jesus had not endured the cross, it might be said that there is a limit to God's love. That there was something God could have done, but was unwilling to do in order to de demonstrate his love for man. But his love knows no bounds, does it? In verse 38, we have what we see as a supernatural confirmation. A supernatural confirmation. It says, then the veil of the temple was torn from two, from top to bottom. Now we know that the curtain or the veil of the temple separated the holy place from the most holy place in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And it was still standing. You know, the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that were in that Ark, and that was still there. I mean, they were still doing sacrifices that very day. Only the priests were allowed to go into the most holy place on behalf of the people. This was done, of course, on the Day of Atonement, once a year when they tie a rope around his foot in case he uh, didn't do it properly and he had sinned before the Lord and then they would be able to drag him out because nobody else could go in and be in the presence of God. But it was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain was approximately two to three inches thick, made from fine linen, and it was torn from top to bottom. Mark's account of this event is significant because human hands did not tear this curtain. It was torn by the hand of God. No longer would access to the Holy of Holies be restricted to the high priest on the annual day of atonement. 
This marked the end of 1,500 years of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Lamb of God was slain and the price had been paid. There were additional supernatural signs. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53. He wrote, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn from two, uh, in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And the coming of the grave, excuse me, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went on to the holy city and appeared to many. What an amazing, amazing. This is a historical account. People say, oh, prove that from history. Well, you have one of the most accurate historical books right before us. And with more, uh, I could go on and on, but I won't. There had been an earthquake at Sinai when the law was given. You remember that. But now the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and its curse removed. Though his through his sacrifice, Jesus had purchased not only freedom from the law, but also freedom from the entire sacrificial system. Spiritual confirmation. And then finally in verse 39, you had confession. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this, and breathed his last. He cried out like this. This centurion would be one that was in command of the detachment that crucified Jesus. There, there were probably 12 because there were four, a detachment of four uh, or five with each one who was being crucified. So there could have been 12 or 15 of them or even more. Now the officer, this centurion, had likely observed Jesus' trial, his final march to the execution, his crucifixion, and the response to the crowd who mocked Jesus. He was watching the whole thing. He was in charge to make sure it was done right, that it was done on time, and that it got over with. He had seen the sky turn black at midday. He felt the earthquake, and he heard Jesus' last words and his shout of victory. The centurion had come to two conclusions right then and there. Luke 23, 47. It says, So when the centurion saw what happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. In our account it says, Truly this was the Son of God. Now this centurion had likely seen hundreds of executions. Remember we talked from last week, there were thousands and thousands of executions. The Romans had taken over crucifixion and they had refined it to uh, what they might consider a fine, brutal art. And he'd seen Jesus be scourged. He'd seen him mocked and beaten, spit upon, everything he would see. But the way that Jesus died was different entirely than anybody else. And he said, you know what? I've never seen anybody die like that. I've never seen anybody that had the strength before they breathed their last to say those words. I've never seen anybody die with such dignity. I've never seen anybody die with such compassion for those around him. He'd never seen anyone like this before. And he probably thought he'd seen it all. 
And he was deeply moved and drawn to Jesus. Now think of it yourself. Think of others that have gone before you, that have ended their lives well. What effect did this have on you and others, those who lived their life and ended it well? We know that it doesn't always go well, folks. And it's not a question of a person's salvation, how it ends. It's a question between them and God. Nobody else could know, possibly. But think about it when you first realized that Jesus was truly the Son of God. There was something remarkable about his nature, something you had learned from his word or hearing his word, and you sensed his presence. Surely this man was the Son of God. Verses 40 through 41, we see Jesus' faithful followers. There were also women looking from afar. Among those who were Mary, uh, there were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and, and of Joseph, and of Salome. They had to watch from a distance. You know, they could only get as close as the Romans would allow them to get. But they stayed. You remember Mary Magdalene. She was the one who had been healed of demon possession. She had seven demons. Healed of demon possession by Jesus. Uh, Mary, the mother of James the Less. Her sons were apparently well known in the early church and they're named here. Matthew 27, 56. It says, among them also was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James of Joseph, and the mother of of Zebedee's sons. So you have a lot of Marys, a lot of women, a lot of Marys. Then John, the Apostle John says, he adds that Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course, uh, was there. And then the Lord's aunt, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. They had a a following of of women. These women had been eyewitnesses to the primary events of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and we'll see at the resurrection as well. These were key women, among others from Galilee, were in Jerusalem to be with him and to serve him. And maybe they were somewhat like those who had hoped he could take himself down from the cross and, you know, wipe out those Romans and take over the government. But they sat through this terrible suffering and they saw the miracles that took place. And they testified of it. And that's one of the reasons why we have the scripture for today was the the testimony of people who were there as eyewitnesses. Notice in verse 41 it says, they also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. So they've been with Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus. What happened to the apostles? Only John remained to care for Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think the point here is very apparent, especially for those who, uh, you know, would call our faith um, sexist, uh, oppressive to women. But I would say this to you, ladies, you moms and grandmoms. It's a fact that the Church of Jesus Christ owes much to the sacrifice and devotion of believing women. Women who have walked with Jesus and faithfully served him. It's likely that many of us 
in this very room first heard about Jesus from your mom, from an aunt or a grandmother. You sang the songs. You were taught the prayers and you faithfully, they were faithfully ministered the love of Jesus to those around you, hopefully. That's what you grew up with. Now we've concluded our look at Jesus' suffering and the death on the cross. But the question still remains. What impact on your life does his death have on you? Was this simply another sad story preserved for us in history? Do you think you can avoid that question if you're listening today? Even if your life seems to be going really great right now, which is <laughs> not heard much in light of our world these days, but everyone will eventually stand before God someday. Your conscience is telling you that we are all guilty of sin. You simply have to be honest about it. Everyone deserves to pay the penalty of their own crimes against God. But God had a better plan. The Old Testament law spells out in simple terms what God expects of us. And His demands are very reasonable. They boil down to love me and be kind to others. Very simple, as one writer put it. And the rest is simply details. And this is something we fail at each and every day, isn't it? He goes on, he says, As our internal love of justice tells us, wrongdoing demands a penalty. According to God, the penalty for rejecting His simple standard, which is the same as rejecting Him personally, is nothing short of eternal separation from God and a place of torment. And justice cannot be set aside. Fortunately, gloriously, God's love and creativity knows no limits. He found a solution to the problem of evil that would satisfy justice while granting us forgiveness of our sins. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Jesus, through innocent, though innocent, Jesus, though innocent, took the place of someone who deserved to pay the penalty of death for wrongdoing. He took the place of another on the cross. You remember Barabbas who went free. But the grace he received is merely an illustration of a greater and more personal truth to you and I. It was your place it was my place he took on the cross. He died for you. He died for me. Father, we thank you for our time together today. And we ask, Lord God, as we conclude our service, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. If there's anybody here in the hearing of my voice who has not heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if you will surrender your life to Jesus knowing and admitting to your need from God to forgive you of your sins, repenting of your sins, and knowing that He died in our place, having heard this message today, 
knowing that if you would place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins would be forgiven and you would share an eternal life. A glorious time in all of eternity. And so Lord, if you're speaking to somebody today that has that upon their heart, whether they are here today or they hear it over the internet, Lord, I pray that you would put it upon their hearts to kneel down and to confess their sins to you and to receive the saving grace of Jesus' blood. Be washed of their sins and be made clean and to be made whole. Would you do that, Father, whenever you choose, of course, Lord, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand, folks, and we will uh, recite our closing prayer and, uh, and conclude our service. Closing prayer. Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You guys have a great day rest of your weekend again thank you we look forward to seeing you soon thank you for joining us today for calvary chapel elizabeth city's online sermon series join us next week as we continue through the bible book by book verse by verse line by line god bless